Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Let's start from the beginning. The father of all things, time especially, named Zervan, is not yet a father, but he really, really wants to be. He sacrifices for a thousand years to produce a child who would, in turn, create the cosmos for himself. To whom the god of time sacrifices is unclear in this story, as is how he hopes to accomplish all this without a consort. And as with so many grand dreams and projects, Zervan's sacrifices produce nothing. He couldn't get pregnant. The tests kept coming back negative. Recognizing the futility of his actions, Zervan begins to have doubts. Frankly, his millennium-long persistence makes the number of times I've quit a language on Duolingo or Mango after a week seem really lame. But lo, it was the act of doubting itself that ends up fertilizing this father. Doubt and frustration were the missing generative elements. I think there's a lesson we can all take away from this. It's sometimes always darkest before the dawn for a dad getting knocked up. I don't know. But it's not all good news. Zervan's pregnant with twins. And beyond that, one of them is good. And the other is, well, the opposite. According to the story, their names are Ormazad and Araman. Though in other stories, they will have different names. More on that later. Having become aware that he's twice as pregnant as he was expecting, Zervan makes a little agreement with himself. Whichever of the twins is born first will be the king of everything. But Zervan wasn't just talking to himself. Thoughts have a potency in this mythology that create really inconvenient scenarios. For instance, Ormazad was able to read his father's mind. And in a gesture of perverse forthcomingness, informed his evil brother Araman in utero that this incredibly arbitrary decree had been made. Rushing to be first in line, Araman ripped his way out of the womb and stood before his father. I'm still trying to imagine how this birth scene was supposed to go down, whether Zervan is hermaphroditic or was just foreshadowing the birth scenes from the Alien movie series. This is a gory, unsettling, and also socially awkward scene. Your son is rushing to rip open your guts so he can claim the prize you were just daydreaming about while shepherding the ages as the god of time. A little taken aback by everything, Zervan wants to know who this dark, pungent figure is. And naturally, by instinct, Araman lies and claims to be the good son, Orgmitzad. Zervan seems surprised, expecting his boy to be radiant and fragrant, just as he was imagining. And right in the middle of this awkward little tete-a-tete, the real Slim Shady, Ormazad, does stand up, right out of the womb, to reveal the deception. But not one to be a wilting daisy, Araman claims his rights, and a compromise is reached. The evil ruler will dominate for 9,000 years, until Ormazad is victorious in the final millennium. And that is how it all got started, folks. The battle between good and evil, light and darkness, truth and falsehood, 
And we might even add God and the devil, according to Zoroastrian mythology. But if there's only one thing that links Araman to the devil, it's the fact that the beginning is never just the beginning. This is a story of the beginning of everything, a cosmogony, that comes from nowhere near the beginning of Zoroastrian thought. It's a retelling of a far older tale with characters who have different names. Or at least it's really hard to know for sure when it comes from, but it was written down maybe a thousand years into the game. The same applies to the devil, whose origin story, as we have seen, is not in Genesis or in any of the oldest texts written in the Hebrew Bible, even though it becomes vital for most Christian theologians to assume that Satan fell from the angelic ranks well in advance of Adam and Eve's little misadventure in Eden. It just seems to be a feature, not a bug. The origin stories of personified evil are always a bit out of whack, a little anachronistic. But hold on a second. What is Zoroastrianism? The ism here is appended onto the name Zoroaster, which is a Western attempt at Zarathustra. Zarathustra is a legendary figure, a priest of the old gods who combined religion and ethics and poetry in a new way. Many Western scholars assume and have assumed that Zoroaster or Zarathustra was an actual historical personage. But given the orality of the earliest texts, that is the fact that they were uh, they were memorized and composed and recited, um, they weren't written down for, for a long time, it's actually really hard to ascertain whether Zarathustra actually existed. Thus, he has no dates for birth or death, and the estimates vary widely. His career, as represented in the Zoroastrian texts, is that of a reformer a devotional poet whose message was fundamentally centered on ethics, and in particular, on ethical dualism. More on that later. But Zoroastrianism forms in the second millennia BCE in Central Asia before the migration of the Iranians onto what is now the Iranian plateau around 1000 BCE. Zoroastrianism, this religion that Zarathustra was reputed to have created or founded, was the imperial religion of three great empires that came out of Iran, the Median, Achaemenid, and Sasanian empires, which dominated the region from 700 BCE to 651 CE. And yeah, that's, that's about a thousand years. But why am I talking about Zoroastrian mythology on a podcast about the devil who developed in late ancient Jewish theology and came to play a central role through most of Christianity's history. What does Zoroastrianism have to do with that? The answer has a lot to do with ancient and late ancient Judaism. As we've discussed, some of the big moments in the history of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms at the center of the Hebrew Bible's historical narrative, is being dominated by foreign empires, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then the Persians. Indeed, it is the Persian or Achaemenid Empire that subdues the Babylonians and resettles the Jewish people back to their traditional homeland around 500 BCE. The Achaemenids would rule the province of Judah, what they called Yehud, for the next 200 years, roughly. And after their rule, the Seleucids would come onto the scene and present a new challenge to Jewish religion, culture, and politics, going back to Epiphanes IV. In many ways, the Persians were the opposites of the Seleucids, they didn't try to impose their state religion or culture on foreigners who populated the outer provinces of the Achaemenid Empire, a truly vast expanse of, of cultures, space, 
regions, etc. In fact, the Achaemenids promoted the reconstruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and backed a new line of high priests who would be the theocratic rulers of Yehud. It seems that the Achaemenid Empire embraced a decentralized, almost culturally relativistic perspective when it came to governing their large empire. They sought to codify the different moral and religious values of the different populations into formal laws that were binding in that province. In other words, they tried to figure out which religions were practiced in a given region and to take the moral codes out of those religions and formalize them. Imperial governors or satraps were stationed in each of the provinces, a reminder of the imperial power behind the local thrones, but official policy largely seems to have been hands-off. Let the locals rule themselves as long as they stay in line. Now, you would think that 200 years of imperial domination by the Persians would leave some marks in the culture and literature of ancient Judaism. And that leads us into the big question of the episode. Did late ancient Jewish perspectives on evil and demons repackage or borrow freely from Persian ideas on the subject? On the surface, in different biblical texts that come out of the later period of the Bible, the Persian influence can seem limited to a few loan words and sometimes the dramatic use of Iranian locales and characters as sort of window dressing to the plot. However, sometimes the connections appear to go deeper, as in the case of the Book of Tobit, part of the Apocrypha. In this story, Tobias is sent by his father Tobit to collect a debt and find a bride among a diaspora community far from home. The place where Tobias is supposed to journey to is in Media, the city of Rajas, squarely in the Achaemenid Empire. But he doesn't go on this business trip alone. This is one of the few places in the entire Bible where a dog plays a supporting role, and scholars looking for Persian traces note that dogs have a far better reputation in Iranian culture than they did in Jewish culture. The angel Raphael, sort of incognito, also goes with Tobias on this errand. And he's a regular font of knowledge, teaching the doubtlessly perplexed Tobias how to ward off demons by burning the heart and liver of a giant fish that tried to attack the young hero. The gallbladder would be used to anoint and heal the eyes of anyone afflicted. Drawing near to Rajas, Raphael presents an incredible opportunity to the young man and survivor of large fish attacks. Marry your cousin. He's speaking of Sarah, a beautiful, intelligent woman who has just had the worst luck. Married seven times. Each time, her husbands get murdered by a demon before the marriage can be properly consummated. Hmm. But mark my words well, Tobias. Remember the fish organ burning trick I taught you when it comes to dealing with demons. This all works out, and the murderous demon, Asmodeus, one of our sponsors, to be sure, is driven off to the remotest parts of Egypt, as the text reports. Maybe he's got family there? Maybe he was getting ready to tempt some monks in a few centuries? Some clues that link this to Zoroastrian mythology and demonology is the name, Asmodeus. There is a demon with a similar name in the Avesta, one of the sacred texts of Zoroastrianism. And this demon operates a according to a sort of similar modus operandi as Asmodeus, interrupting the uh, natural relations between bride and groom. So yeah, that seems like sort of a coincidence, maybe a big one. And there's some debate about it, though, as with everything we'll read when it comes to discussing the influence of Zoroastrianism on Jewish apocalyptics, the most basic details are at odds in any two given accounts. 
One of the stumbling blocks is that the text in which Asmodeus's name appears is in Greek, because it's from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But we don't know how it would have appeared in the original Aramaic or Hebrew versions, versions that actually do exist in the libraries at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Fragments of the Book of Tobit do exist at Qumran in, in those documents, but not any of the pieces contain the name of the demon. So the link to the Avestan demon remains a bit questionable. Like maybe the Greek version took some liberty that we're unaware of, and it's totally different in the original version. We just don't really know. Particularly enthusiastic researchers see parallels in other places in Jewish pseudo-epigrapha, texts we discussed recently like Enoch and Jubilees. These pertain most especially to the stories of uh, demons and the Watchers. So if you go back with me for a second, the Watcher Shemihaza leads a rebellious detachment of horny angels on a mission to seduce and impregnate human women. A parallel exists in an Avestan story from Zamyad Yasht that involves the rape of women by demons, or at least troublesome spirits. Demons is kind of like a loaded term. In this myth, the conquests are violent, while it's unclear whether they are or not in the Watcher's story. The demons responsible have gone through a shift in their meaning in the Avestan story, since in the older sources, they appear to be morally neutral deities, but now are violent and abusive. Zarathustra drives the demons underground by chanting the Ahuna Variara prayer, and thus he deprives them of the hymns and sacrifices that they craved, reflecting the way these demons were considered to be legitimate deities at some point. In Enoch, interspecies sex is used to explain the rise of evil, whereas in the Avesna story, it represents the moment in which the earth is cleansed of demonic influence. There's also a parallel to another one of the Watchers, Azael, the Watcher who teaches humanity things like metallurgy, weapons, the arts of war, makeup, all the spice of life. There are clues that now lost Avestan verses pertain to a diabolical origin to human culture. The story is that of the primeval king Yima who forced the demons, or those divinities, to teach humanity the positive arts of civilization, like writing and, and arithmetic and stuff you learn at school, but also probably war stuff. He's able to accomplish this through his royal and heroic glory, an important trait that he eventually loses through his dishonesty. According to the story, after Yima wrings all this information out of the demons about how to grow crops and understand the seasons and writing and, and stuff, he gets a, it gets, goes to his head a little bit. The knowledge he gets from the demons is good, but the sin is what happens afterwards. It's how full of himself he becomes. Yima goes on to claim to be a god himself and falls from grace. All that sounds kind of familiar when we compare it with different versions of the Lucifer or Satan story. When things go really wrong in the book of Enoch, Azael and the other fallen angels are bound up until the last judgment. Before the Persian period, enemies just sort of get killed off in the Hebrew Bible. They're not sent into the demonic incarceration chambers. But there are there is an exception, like the Leviathan in Job winds up in, in God's pleasure pond. So theoretically, the story of 
another monster that gets, ends up incarcerated is a, is a way to explain why this form of punishment for demons is a useful mythical mythological narrative in, in later Jewish writing. So there's a story of Aji Daka. Aji is this multi-headed dragon in the Avesta with the, the cunning of an unscrupulous politician. In addition to taking the form of a dragon, Aji also appears as a usurper Arab king. So sort of running the gamut between full-on monster and political menace. But even the king has serpents growing out of his shoulders, which is pretty gross. Maybe pretty cool, I don't know. He's associated with the desire to violently wipe out the human race, and but also with uh, having sex with human women. So we sort of these, like, destroy humanity, but procreate with humanity. Sort of these warring impulses, I guess. Um, he's one of the underbosses for the... Uh, the evil side of Zoroastrian dualism, Angra Manyu, um, or uh, as we were talking about before, uh, Ariman. So like any good underboss, he actually gets bested by a hero. In this case, the hero's name is Thytona. And yet, what's one of the interesting details and in what sort of plays into the incarceration motif is that it would be too polluting to kill the dragon. I sort of imagine that like, you wouldn't destroy the evil robot that has like the nuclear fission reactor as his power source like it would be it would be too polluting too destructive so the monster ajidaka is imprisoned inside mount damavand which is uh, about 40 miles outside of tehran today um you always see these, these beautiful images of mountain ranges outside of tehran and there's, there's a dragon in one of them the final destruction of ajidaka is deferred until the end of time so we sort of see that that theme is it, that's a, oh, that's a place where it seems like this theme of imprisoning monsters or demons and locking them up until a final judgment or a final confrontation. Um, we see a possible influence there. Azael and the other Watchers are not dragons per se. However, the dragon embodies both bloodthirsty desire to destroy humanity and this sort of illicit sexual unions with, with human women. And so he's like a convenient link between Azael's warlording weapons workshop classes and Shemihaza's rebellious horniness, while also introducing this idea of enemies being bound until the end of time. It's a trope that functions in the Watcher stories, and also, as we will see uh, later on, with the binding of Satan, aka the dragon, the old serpent, and the onset of a millennium of peace and harmony in the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. So last week we were talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one interesting detail in debating Persian influences on late antique or post-exilic Judaism is the fact that more Iranian loanwords appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls than in the Hebrew Bible proper. Uh, one of the key ones that, that does appear in the Hebrew Bible is in the book of Daniel, which features the loanword Raz, which means secret. Naturally, this whole business is something of a tweed-blazered mystery. The Iranian loan languages we're talking about are plural, and in these sources they are mediated by imperial Aramaic, the chancery language of the empire, the sort of the language that business was conducted in and, and correspondence was used. Aramaic is also the language that would become the spoken tongue for much of the region, including the residents of Yehud, and that would include also Jesus himself. So a really important language. Another interesting Iranian loanword that appears 
uh, is uh, Nasir. And this one's in this one appears in the War Scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it means hunting. Though it's often rendered as carnage or something else related to really intense violence. Uh, this is a word that, for some, is like a clue that the Essenes and the the sectarian writers of a lot of the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls had knowledge of aristocratic Persian culture, which included a lot of hunting. But all that might seem like pocket change compared to the massive cultural and religious influences riches we've been seeking. For this motherlode, scholars, and in particular those of the Dead Sea Scrolls, have been drawn to intriguing parallel themes, appropriately enough. Chief among them, dualism. As we've discussed in episode 4, dualism is a loaded term, often freighted with a host of assumptions and agendas. For example, the negative connotation dualism has in Christianity developed through attempts by ancient theologians to discredit Manichaeism, a religion that emerged from the shadow of Zoroastrianism, while also being influenced by Judaism, Christianity, and Buddhism. In any case, as we discussed, the Dead Sea Scrolls come off as much more dualistic than anything that comes out of the Jewish canon to that point, though the Book of Daniel and Maccabees are contenders. In the treatise on the two spirits, we have these spirit armies dominating humanity, working to take possessions of hearts, minds, and the cosmos itself. There are layers of dualism at the cosmic, ethical, and psychological levels of creation. In the War Scroll, we have a cosmic dualism that's being fought out in a final battle, the eschaton, between Bilial, the, the chief of the demons, the chief of the fallen angels, and Michael, the archangel. It is the adaptation of dualistic imagery by the sectarian community and sources that influence their views that seem to call out for an explanation in the first decades of Dead Sea Scroll research. But what was the scent that the early Dead Sea Scroll researchers thought they were sniffing? What did they mean when they saw the traces of Zoroastrian dualism in the thought world of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The important thing to know is what we can't know about Zoroastrian sources. The oldest copies date from the 6th century of the Common Era, well over a millennia after most thinkers, after most scholars, think that the Zoroastrianism religion took root. This is, of course, a result of the drastic political and religious shift resulting from the Muslim conquest in Iran over the Sasani Empire, the third Persian Empire after the Achaemenids and the Parthians. So whenever we are trying to speak about what ancient Iranians practiced and believed during the Achaemenid and Parthian empires, we always have to add a lot of qualifications because the texts, as they existed back then, are just simply not available. On the other hand, the newer copies of the texts do make allusions to the antiquity of what they contain, and it's possible to reconstruct a sequence of which portions contain the oldest material. But everything is still being mediated, and there's a lot of fuzziness. And to add to the fuzziness, as it seems to me sometimes as I research this topic, the same scholar will come off as very optimistic about getting at something ancient through these mediated texts in one article, and then totally pessimistic in another. It just seems like it's like a really moody subject. The oldest materials are collected in the Avesta, a text that I've mentioned a few times so far. The Avesta is subdivided into the Old and Young Avesta, with the latter being a collection of miscellaneous rituals and other scriptures, and the former being divided into five hymns known as the Gathas. It's very hard to date the Avesta. It goes back as far as the second millennia BCE, and to make matters more complicated, Avestan, the language of the Avesta, is its own language. 
for some scholars, this means we can only really think about the influence of Zoroastrian ideas and Avestan ideas insofar as we're talking about the use and knowledge of Avestan as a language. And there's just no evidence to suggest that knowledge of this language extended so far as the settlements of Qumran. Linguistically and mythologically, there's some significant overlap between the Avesta and the ancient Sanskrit Vedas. Both texts contain highly archaic language, have similar distinctions between gods and demons, and were transmitted by memorization. The other thing that we could see as a link is the way that they're both structured around ritual. These are liturgical texts, texts for doing things with words, gestures, and elements, and not simply narrative write-ups of mythological deeds. The most explicit discussion of dualism comes in texts that are, that are later than the Avesta, written in an entirely different language, Pahlavi, a precursor to what we think of as Persian or, or Farsi today. These texts were collected and written down in the 9th century of the Common Era, and they contain oral priestly traditions that possibly extend far back into the origins of the religion. Of course, as I keep saying, it's really hard to be clear on what's ancient enough to predate and thus be a possible influence on Second Temple Jewish sources. In the Old Avesta, the wise, powerful king, Ahura Mazda, creates the universe. See, this is different than the story I told at the beginning. In the beginning, it's the god of time who creates the universe, and here, it's a totally different person. Ahura Mazda fashions it together by the power of his thought. Again, that's, this is a, sort of a common theme. In the later Avestas, creation takes place through two rival spirits who are set in motion by Ahura Mazda. In the older version, Ahura Mazda creates and works to restrain his evil rival, the spirit of the lie, known as Angra Manyu. Now, the struggle between good and evil, truth, falsehood, etc., etc., takes place on a less basic ontological tier. The world they create is a battlefield, or rather two battlefields, that sometimes overlap. This implies that Ahura Mazda goes from being the primal creator in the sort of older versions of the mythology to a less primal one in later versions, a demiurge locked in competition to create worlds with his evil twin. One interesting thing to note about the world of evil and its inhabitants, for the writers of the later Pallavi Corpus, evil and its spirits were restricted to the world of thought. They're, they're sort of less tangible than in the world of the world of bone as it's understood to exist in the Avesta. That's the way they express the idea of materiality. It's of bone. And the other world is of thought. The evil spirits or gods, known as the, uh, the Diawas, are chased out of the world of bone by the heroic Zarathustra through a set of holy prayers. And we, we uh, discussed this before when we were looking at parallels in the Watcher stories where uh, these, these Diawas or these demons are are, are raping people, and this gets Zarathustra to ban them from the world of bone. Um, and this sort of interspecies sex in the Watcher story is a story about the beginnings of evil, and here it's a story about how to how to deal with evil. Um, both worlds are good, the world of bone and, and thought. They're both the product of Ahura Mazda's wise craftsmanship. Uh, in a later version, our main man, Ormazad, the person who's synonymous with Ahura Mazda, and you can kind of hear it, Ahura Mazda, Ahura Mazda, Ormazad, my pronunciation's a little rough. In a later version, Ormazad describes himself as the mother of creation insofar as he thinks it through, and then its father when he actualizes it in the material realm. 
the link between femininity and thought and paternality and material sometimes inverts Western norms around these things to a certain degree. It also helps explain Zervan's pregnancy from the beginning. I keep mentioning the difficulty with getting at the thing itself when it comes to Zoroastrian scripture. For example, the story of Zervan's pregnancy that I told at the beginning and about the twins in the womb is actually one of the, one of the sort of the main sources for this this myth is something preserved in the Muslim historian Al Shahrastani's account of Persian religions from the 12th century. So this is being saved by someone who is not of the same tradition, who's sort of collecting and studying and analyzing the old religions that predated Islam's ascendancy in Persia. This story used to be associated with something that Western scholars thought of as a heresy, the Zervanite heresy. But it's not at all clear that the category of heresy and orthodoxy really pertain in ancient Iran. It's like a very Christian way of thinking about things. Strangely enough, the oldest sources we have about Zoroastrianism comes from a Greek philosopher, Plutarch, who was writing in the first century of the Common Era. I mention him not only for discussing methods and sources, but also because some of the things Plutarch records about Zoroastrianism seems to call out for comparison with the Dead Sea Scroll and the War Scroll in particular. So even though Plutarch's date of composition is relatively late, his source is in a Greek writer from the 3rd century named Theopompus, 3rd or 4th century. Plutarch's text relays the by now familiar basics about this twin spirit of light and darkness and their struggle to rule the world with each side dominating for several thousand years until there's a final battle. In the, this case, the details that Plutarch records about this being a 6,000-year struggle strikes scholars as eerily similar to the way the lot of Michael and the lot of Bilyal trade victories and losses and get stuck in a stalemate during their 40-year confrontation in the war scroll. So there's a sense in, in both sides of the story, the Plutarch's version, Plutarch's understanding of Zoroastrianism, and then the Dead Sea Scroll materials about how the forces of light and the forces of darkness are, are locked in a stalemate for a sort of a, a, a long period of time. You can imagine that this parallel really sent the Tweed Blazers a-flying. And there seem to be others. Uh... We discussed the treatise on the two spirits last time, uh, a sort of important demonological text from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the situation described there is really complicated. There's a cosmic struggle, psychological and ethical struggles internal to the human being between good and evil angels. And it's all a little hazy whether people have any modicum of free will to choose which side of the struggle they want to join up with. One scholar describes the ethical dualism, the choice between good and evil, as subordinate to the cosmic eschatological struggle. In other words, the, the ethical choice to you know, take the right path is important, but it's, it's epiphenomenal. It's, it's sort of less central to the story than this bigger dualistic struggle. Um, it's if, right, you have some agency, but your agency is really constrained. At the same time, we saw last week how the, in the vision of Amram, a sort of older text, older dualistic angelic text, the august patriarch, the father of Moses, wakes to find a good angel and a bad angel hovering above him. And the bad one ain't a cute cartoon devil on Garfield's shoulder telling him to eat the lasagna. 
Amram is described as having a choice to make between this terrifying angel of darkness and your sort of radiant angel of light. And it's like Bob Dylan sings, you got to serve somebody. Something similar holds true in the young Avesta. And in one particular section known as the Gotha of Choice, there is this situation where it seems that the twin spirits are choosing their path in the world. The, tw- the, the, the good spirit chooses well and is wise. The bad spirit chooses poorly and is foolish. Um, and this sort of thing is what pertains. Um, and scholars of Zoroastrianism, especially when they're commenting on parallels to the Dead Sea Scrolls, emphasize the role of choice in its ethical teachings. And they sort of set this off from what is seen as um, deterministic predestination emphasis in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The dualism that seems more or less consistent also gives Ahura Mazda an out when it comes to the question of who's responsible for this mess that Ahura Mazda finds himself in. In texts like the Treatise on the Two Spirits and the War Scroll, it's more complicated. Or maybe it's less complicated. I don't know. God's sovereignty is affirmed again and again. He's the one who has allowed the demons to dominate the earth. God put them in place, but he hates them nonetheless. It's... it's it's a little mysterious. That may be a little bit more straightforward. Ahura Mazda has the advantage of foreknowledge over his opponent. He uses this knowledge to manipulate creation so that it's not only a battlefield, but also a trap for the evil spirit. There isn't the fiery damnation of the Judeo-Christian imagination, but instead a neutralization in Zoroastrian eschatology. In the same way that the dragon gets trapped in the mountain, there's a sense that evil needs to be tripped up and trapped. So it can't do any more harm. But Ahura Mazda's foreknowledge does not mean he has preordained the entire sequence in the way one can infer that God does in the War Scroll. Ahura Mazda knows what's going to happen, but he didn't make it all happen. Why God created the world and the demons remains quite mysterious in the War Scroll, whereas in Zoroastrian texts, it's clear that the created world exists as an incredibly complex strategic feint to trip up and misdirect the powers of evil. And the evil powers are that way because they wanted to be. And yet this Gotha of Choice has each of the spirits declaring its nature through thought and action. And the false god chooses falsely. And so this whole you have a free choice thing seems a bit of an oversimplification to me. Someone who's not an expert in, by any means in ancient Persian religion, but uh, the way in which the, the the bad spirit declares its nature and is less wise and chooses poorly seems possibly a little deterministic to me. Um, and maybe that's just the mythology. Um, maybe the mythology is a little fuzzy. Uh, for people describing the ethical, practical qualities of Zoroastrian religion, um, they say things like, uh, a Zoroastrian's duty is to think good thoughts, speak good words, perform good acts, yet there is no obligation to be absolute or excessive in the performance of these duties. The primary goal is to do the best one can while exercising moderation. So what are we to do with all of this? From the perspectives of scholars of ancient Zoroastrianism, the Dead Sea Scrolls 20th century readership saw the dualism in the scrolls and thought, hmm, something's new here, and then went about trying to attach the newness to a, scare quotes, outside source, and came up with Zoroastrianism. As we've seen, this wasn't totally a coincidence, but 
A number of problems quickly arose when considering this hypothesis. The enumeration of parallels between Zoroastrianism and Jewish texts may be provocative, but it didn't tell us how or whether the imagined influence took place at all. Influence itself is kind of a vague term. Does it mean sort of just mechanically reproducing the content from other tradition? Does it mean sort of fudging some vague resemblance to the, to the old tradition? How is, does it require being taught by teachers from this tradition or just sort of having a rough idea about what they think? It's like, it's, there's a lot to unpack with this term. There's also that whole thing I keep mentioning again and again that the actual age of the Iranian texts is very hard to know with any precision. And so we don't know which texts could plausibly have been known by post-exilic Jewish writers, let alone how they would have known them, whether translated or whether they had the command of Vestin or, or uh, other Persian languages to, to really make their way with them. And I think this is like all the whole point. The parallels between Zoroastrian, Avestan texts, and later texts with the Dead Sea Scrolls in particular are really interesting, but researchers want the details, not just fanciful speculations about how these parallels might have arose. Parallelmania, you know, the, the mania for parallels is, is a problem, and it's a problem that really haunts the comparative study of religion in particular, I would say. Persianists in particular, from what I gather, don't really feel like having their sources become the shiny new toy for scholars in different fields, especially when the understanding of those sources may betray ignorance of more recent developments in the field. This is something you see not entirely infrequently in academic research. An outdated understanding of one field appears in a new field and looks cutting edge. Researchers like Jason Silverman who wrote a book in 2012 about Persepolis and Jerusalem and the relationship between Zoroastrian and, and Jewish texts. People like this who want to keep working on the connections have devised some interesting methodologies for determining the probability of influence. Another scholar, Albert de Jong, proposes more work being done on the rivalry between the Parthian, the sort of the Persian Empire that followed the Achaemenid Empire, and the Seleucid Empire, the Hellenistic Kingdom that dominated ancient Israel and sparked the, the Maccabean revolts, as we've sort of talked about in previous episodes. This geopolitical rivalry between the Seleucids and the Parthians was in effect at the time when the Dead Sea Scrolls would have been written. And so it's also seems like striking that it's these texts in particular that display the most parallels. So it's like, so understanding that context more than it has really been studied to this point might be illuminating about why these Jewish sectarians were really interested potentially in Zoroastrian ideas. What does this mean for how we think about the history of the devil? Part of the point of the whole podcast, I think, is to show how complex the devil is. There is no single origin story. There are instead many of them, and most of them happen far later than anything we might think of as the origins of the religions in question. How you tell the beginning of the story does matter for the way it transpires in its middle and the way it concludes at the end. Even if late ancient Jewish writers did peruse Zoroastrian texts or had contact with Zoroastrian priests and writers, they still reworked those ideas and made them function in a new context. As Silverman writes, there has to be a hook, or to put it a different way, a place in the narrative and theological structure for the new content. It's not like a foreign particle, and these religious traditions are not hermetically sealed chambers. 
For me, the awareness of this potential or maybe even likely borrowing of the images, stories, and concepts from Zoroastrianism fits in with the story we're trying to tell on this podcast. Like the demoniac explains to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we are legion. There are lots of devils, demons, and dragons to choose from when you want to tell a story about how everything went wrong. Thanks again for listening. Before I go, I just want to give a quick thanks and shout out to two people who helped supply information and articles and support for this podcast this week. Uh, the first is Professor Emeritus uh, Prods Oktor Shaivo and my good friend Ernie J. Mitchell. Thanks to those two and for everyone listening, and you'll hear from us next week. This pod is produced by Infernal Production and is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.